one of the um, views of this path that we're on together that really resonates for me is that of remembering and forgetting and then remembering again and forgetting. And it's one of those um, rhythms that whether we've been here for two days or for a month and two days, it becomes so clear. And there's this, um, what I sometimes sense as a shared predicament that we're in, which is that each of us um, really intuits and knows about true nature. Each of us um, has touched and experienced something of that awareness with, those, with the qualities of love and radiance and openness. So we've all, we all intuit that. And yet every single day, for most of us at least, we get stuck, we get caught in our conditioning. And we go into what's sometimes described as a trance, where we subscribe to this story of a small self that's on his or her way somewhere. And we're trying to get better and avoid bad things and be more comfortable. And um, basically, we're in a trance that's contracted. We've, in those moments, and that this is kind of the definition of trance, it obscures what's true. We're not remembering in those moments the truth of our goodness and that freedom that's possible. So, um, in Washington, there's a woman that wrote, a, she's an acupuncturist, and she wrote a book, and the title of the book is All Sickness is Homesickness. And there's, through that, this theme that when we're suffering, when there's any sense of unease, when there's dukkha, in some way we've left home, we've forgotten, we've disconnected from that sense of loving awareness, of presence. And the Buddha taught that our deepest suffering is forgetting who we are. I'll just read you, this is Thomas Merton. Of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves. This is the most important of all journeys, and without it, all of the rest are useless. So what we practice together here these days really are pathways of remembering, the mindfulness, the heartfulness that carry us back home again, that help us cross the abyss. And one way of describing this is we're taking refuge in the Dharma. We're taking refuge in life as it is, moment after moment. That's really the primary practice. Zen master Ryokan, a wonderful poet, puts it this way. He says, if you want to know the Buddhist law, drift east drift west, entrusting yourself to the waves. So this is what I want to talk about tonight, really, is how do we entrust ourselves to the waves? Because there's something in that I think that we, I speak for myself, it sounds so beautiful, this kind of 
just let go into life as it is. Just really allow this life. Just be. Live this life. It says, um, you know, if we really sense deeply what's our aspiration. Um, and I, I love the way Joseph Campbell said it. He said, most people think in some way we're trying to find meaning. But really, our deepest aspiration is to live this life fully. To really live from the fullness of who we are. So to entrust ourselves to the waves. And, of course, what that really means is to not resist, which is what we're learning about. So as a way of of beginning, it's kind of an inquiry tonight to really how do these, and I'm hoping it'll be very practical, really how do we entrust ourselves? What are the ways that we can cultivate our capacity for presence? for a really committed presence, so that when the waves get roughed, we can learn to stay. And I think of a lot of our practices learning to stay. First, um, one of my friends in Washington is a Unitarian minister, and he passed this on to me, and I thought it was really interesting. Once the English had colonized India and established their businesses They yearned for recreation and decided to build a golf course in Calcutta. Now, golf in Calcutta would prove to present a unique obstacle. Monkeys from nearby habitats would drop out of trees, scurry across the course, and seize the golf balls. The monkeys would play with the balls, tossing them here and there. At first, the golfers tried to control the monkeys. Their first strategy was to build high fences around the fairways and greens. This approach, which seemed initially to hold much promise, was abandoned when the golfers discovered that a fence is no challenge to an ambitious monkey. Next, the golfers tried luring the monkeys away from the course, but the monkeys found nothing as amusing as watching humans go wild whenever their little white balls were disturbed. In desperation, the British began trapping and relocating the monkeys, but for every monkey they carted off, another would appear. Finally, the golfers gave in to reality and established a rather novel ground rule for that particular course. Golfers in Calcutta were obliged to play the ball wherever the monkey dropped it. (laughs) So you understand the deep teaching. (laughs) Play the ball wherever the monkey drops it. So in a way, here we are, and we, and we know there's all these monkeys. And right here, because we're in this incredible setting, the monkeys are all our internal habits that kind of leave us in these different states of body-mind. And the invitation is, can we really start right where we are? And instead of trying to control or fix, are in some way change things, can we, in that moment, be with what is? So, in a way, for most of us, the beginning of a lot of our practice, and it can be, if we're very new in practice, or it can be at the beginning of a sit or a long retreat, is that we become more acutely aware of all our strategies to leave the present moment. Most of them are mental, because we don't have that many options here. (laughs) But we start recognizing how we resist. And um, traditionally and classically, 
um, the, the modes of resistance, of the ways that we pull away, contract, grasp, are described as the hindrances, and Gil will be going into that more fully. But just to mention some primary domains, one way that when in the moment it's uneasy, uncomfortable, there's, an, uh, there's a sub kind of subterranean sense of something's missing, not enough. So one way that we don't stay is we lean into the what's more, something better, something more. And as most of us know, our, our wanting here at home gets hitched to what we think will bring us happiness. And we, what we do in any moment that we're, instead of really opening to how it is, we're kind of hankering after something, it's what I've come to think of as we're taking false refuge in those moments, rather than refuge in the Dharma, in what's right here, we're giving ourselves to, or taking ourselves away from the moment and and contracting, trying to hold to something. And we can see how we do it here. Uh, There's this planning mind that's in some way trying to orchestrate a day that works, that brings us the most pleasure. So we do a lot of planning on when we're going to fit in maybe a longer walk or when we're going to, how we're going to get our spot at Qigong or how we're going to take a nap or we're just, there's this kind of molding of the day. Uh, We do it in subtle ways and overt ways. In the most basic way, we're trying to have a certain kind of meditation experience. There's a wanting for that. I want to share with you that in Washington I gave a talk on wanting mind and often people will send me things afterwards, anecdotes and so on, to help illustrate. Here's one of them. A man and a woman were sitting beside each other in the first class section of a plane. The woman sneezed, took out a tissue, gently wiped her nose and then shuddered quite violently for 10 or 15 seconds. The man just went back to his reading. But a few minutes later, she sneezed again, took a tissue, again wiped her nose, and once again did that shuddering, and he became more curious. A few more moments or minutes passed, and the woman sneezed one more time. Again, she took out a tissue, gently wiped her nose, and shuddered violently. The man couldn't restrain his curiosity. He turned to the woman and said, You've sneezed three times, wiped your nose with a tissue, then shuddered violently. Are you all right? I'm sorry if I disturbed you, the woman replied. I have a rare condition. When I sneeze, I have an orgasm. (laughs) The man was a little embarrassed, but even more curious, and said, you know, I've never heard of that before. What are you taking for it? (laughs) The woman looked at him and said, pepper. (laughs) I know you get the idea that we... (laughs) We get attached to pleasant experiences and then we try to make it happen however we can. What I'd like to spend a little more time on is how we leave home, leave the moment when it's unpleasant. And we have our strategies of resisting, but just to say that it becomes more and more clear as we're paying attention a little that whenever there's an unpleasant emotion an unpleasant experience in the body, we don't, we don't want it there. And there's some underlying belief or assumption that something's wrong, that it shouldn't be happening. 
And that then proliferates to there's something wrong with me. And it's really, it's often, I've noticed this a lot, it's quite sad that people will go through serious illnesses, acute chronic pain, whatever, and in addition to the difficulty of that, there's this added layer of something's wrong with me for feeling sick. There's something wrong with me for having this depression, our anxiety, our jealousy, our woundedness. And it's, very, it's so pervasive. I, I've come to call it this, the trance of unworthiness, um, this sense of insufficiency that something's wrong in a very core way when there's unpleasant feelings or experiences. And it's kind of like when, we're, when there's something painful, our first survival strategy is to attribute blame, and we usually blame ourselves. And it's really in service of trying to fix the problem. But it creates a whole pattern within us of moving through our experience with an undercurrent of, I'm not okay. And I like to talk about it at the beginning of retreats, because whenever there's a constellation of beliefs and feelings that isn't fully in awareness, it can very much dominate our experience. It can, it can keep on fueling the trance that we're in of being a separate self. So not seeing that we can easily move through retreat. And we have these ideas, these standards for how the retreat should be, for how a meditation should be. We have an idea about how it should be in walking practice, how we should look. We have ideas about how we should be in, in, in the dining hall. You know, I, um, as the more I reflected in these last years on how pervasive the experience is, of in some way not good enough, not doing it right, and how much wraps around it. Um, I ended up doing, speaking a lot about it, and I went to Nairopa, uh, this about two years ago, to give a talk about acceptance and shame. And they did a poster to announce it, and it had a picture of me, and the caption underneath was, something is wrong with me. Because <laughs> I talk about that a lot. <laughs> To begin to, to observe our, ourselves on retreat and notice where we have some expectation, some standard, and then just to notice, I can say for myself, there's a kind of inner monitoring that goes, well, how am I doing now? And there's usually a gap. It's just a habit that there's a gap of my idea of how I should be, like right this moment. I should be feeling relaxed open, completely unself-conscious, you know, and then there's this, this kind of monitoring of, oh, well, there's tension. In that gap, there's that contraction that in some way reinforces a sense of a self, a not-okay self, and a separate self. we take false refuge when we feel that. And what I mean by that is we go into judging and fixing mode. We try to improve ourselves. It's interesting to watch how much of, in the retreat, there's an, an undertone of a self trying to be better. 
We can, when we're anxious, we start having a hard time making decisions. Should I meditate more in my room or here? Should I do this or that? And again, I'll give you an illustration. The Japanese eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. Now, the French eat a lot of fat and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the Brits or Americans. The Japanese drink very little red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than the Brits or the Yanks. Now, the Italians drink huge amounts of red wine and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the above. Now, the Germans drink a lot of beer and suffer fewer... And it goes on and on and on. The conclusion, eat and drink what you like, speaking English is what kills you. Whenever we feel uneasy, whenever we feel unpleasantness, either the option is that we deepen attention or we'll find that there's a habitual way that we take false refuge. And the invitation is just to watch it here. Really, it's, it's almost a given that in this culture we have these standards of trying to be more and more perfect. And um, one of the places here I kind of wanted to mention where it becomes really interesting to observe do we go into trance is the dining hall. And I find I've, I've taught many, many retreats and always at some point in the retreat I wonder why don't we talk more about the dining hall. And the reason I bring it up is that if we're very, very present, moment by moment paying attention, there can be a tremendous enjoyment and aliveness, and gratitude, which Anna guided us in and pointed out, pointed to today. If we're not paying such close attention, for many of us, because we have so many issues of wanting and fearing around food and around our bodies, the dining hall actually becomes a place that can trip it off. It takes a lot of attention. We can find that that all our issues around, am I going to get enough? Or will I look like I'm eating too much? Will somebody else take it? Should I have seconds? There can be a tremendous amount of self-consciousness so that we're actually eating and looking very slow and mindful. And it's almost like we're imagining how we look through others' eyes at ourselves. We're not really inside it. The same thing can happen with walking practice. So just to become aware of how much we're we're doing this practice with an idea of how it's supposed to be versus arriving in just this moment. When we find that we've left home, when we're caught in the false refuges, when we're judging, when we're planning, when we're worrying, I find a really powerful inquiry is to just ask, what am I running from this moment? What am I hiding from? just to pause and ask and pay attention. Carl Jung said that our neurosis and suffering arise from the parts of our psyche that are unseen and unfelt. So much much of this practice is to include what we have not included. Another way he described it that I really liked was that in the Piscean age, 
the spiritual path was really conceived of as climbing this ladder to perfection, like becoming more perfect all the time, or trying to. And that in a more mature kind of spirituality, rather than climbing a ladder to being perfect, it's really to turn around and embrace this world in all its messiness and depression and mystery and beauty, the joys and the sorrows. So it's the difference between a path to perfection and a path to wholeness. So the beginning of entrusting ourselves to the waves, really embracing our moment-to-moment experience as we've been practicing here, is to begin to get the knack of waking up out of thoughts to arriving right here in what's happening. And that's no small thing. So just to spend a few moments on it, that we keep on reinventing ourselves with our internal dialogue. And there's the most basic clinging is to this sense of self. So we very much cling to, we keep producing more thoughts to keep showing ourselves we're here. So to have a willingness and a commitment to recognize thoughts, so there's mindfulness, to recognize they're happening, and to have enough concentration, which is that training to come back and to really become more and more able to be absorbed, focused on a primary subject, begins to free us up. And I've, in the last retreat I taught in Washington, I remember one man in an interview said, I finally got a glimpse of, of how it's possible to be free And it all depends on me not believing my thoughts. Just not believing them. We get in a lot of trouble believing them. Again, I'll give you an example, and this is another one someone sent to me in the last six months. A couple from Michigan decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the very same hotel where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel reservations. So the husband left Michigan and flew to Florida on Thursday, and his wife flew down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing his error, he sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston... A woman had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a very elderly man, had been a minister for many years, passed peacefully, and was now called home to glory, following a sudden heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room and found his mother on the floor and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife, Subject, I've arrived. Date, 20th March, 2004. (laughs) I know you're surprised to hear from me. (laughs) They have computers here now, and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. (laughs) I've just arrived and been checked in. (laughs) I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) 
looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. <laughs> P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> Part of the reason that I'm sharing some of these with you is that I think built into this trance that we're in of a separate self trying to get somewhere is that it's grim and it's hard work and it's heavy. And, and that feels very much a part of the um, illusion of how we think it's supposed to be. So believing our thoughts, just not to believe them, and to be able to get the knack of recognizing, okay, thoughts and to pause. And these are really, the the instructions are actually really simple to notice, to pause. Re-relax. You know, when we've been thinking, the mind is tightened. The thoughts are a contraction. So to relax the tendrils of the mind. I like to listen to sound some, just to remember space. To relax the body again. To come back. So the next part... So we've come back is really how do we genuinely entrust ourselves to the waves that are right here and now? And a metaphor that many of you are familiar with that I find really useful is to sense that whatever we're experiencing right now, whatever thoughts, feelings, sensations, emotions, are waves in the ocean of our being. That We are awareness. We include the waves. They don't define us. They don't limit us. Unless, of course, we contract into that trance that believes we are the waves. So our practice is to connect with the waves fully, completely engaged presence, remembering that we're the ocean. And there's an art to that practice. At times we need to emphasize how do we really touch the waves of the moment? We might be spaced out, dissociated. How do we really contact what's happening? And at other times we can feel possessed, like we're getting completely rolled in the waves. And then the the art is to how do we remember, reconnect with a sense of spaciousness, heart, the fullness of awareness, mindfulness. And it's not one or the other. In any given moment, full presence means to fully feel what's happening and rest in that vastness, in that space of awareness. So first, to explore a little bit more, how do we we connect with what's really here in a full way? And my sense for, for myself is that when I am feeling in some way removed, that the practice of inquiry, of just asking, well, what's happening right now? The simplicity of that in any moment, you can try it right now. What is happening inside me this moment? Redirects the attention. What wants attention? What wants acceptance? to use inquiry to direct our attention back home again. One question is what's happening 
inside me right now. The other question is really, can I be with this fully, without resistance? And that is the challenge of connecting with the waves, to absolutely, this moment, can we open to the waves of our experience with zero resistance? Any resistance equals a certain amount of suffering, a certain degree of consolidating as a self. Can we meet these waves with no resistance? A story I'll share with you. Um, Some years ago, I was teaching on the East Coast, and one of the students that attended the retreat um, was in the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. And he come to the retreat with his wife because at that point he couldn't cut his food or find his way from room to room or whatever. And um, he knew what was happening. He was a clinical psychologist. He had practiced for several decades uh, meditation. And he knew it was happening. And when I met with him in the interview room, he, his um, mood was upbeat, curious, mischievous. He had moments of sadness, anxiety, but he, he, was, he was generally cheerful. And I asked him kind of, you know, kind of what gives, what's letting you be with this in, in the way you are. And his response to me was, I don't think anything's wrong. And, and he went on to say, it's kind of just like at fall, in the fall time, it's not wrong that the leaves are changing colors and falling off the their branches, it's just what's happening. But then he went on to describe to me how um, some years earlier, right at, the, right at the onset, where he was beginning to have lapses, um, he had been invited to speak in front of a group of people, a fairly large group of people. So he prepared his um, talk, and he sat in front of them, and just when he was about to start, he completely went blank. And, and he had no idea what he was going to say or what he was supposed to say. He didn't know why this whole group of people were just looking at him expectantly. He was completely blank. So here's what he did. First he paused. He didn't do anything. And then he put his palms together and he just started naming. Like he, he said, afraid. Then he bowed. Then confused, bowed. Really ashamed, bowed. Heart pounding, bowed. This kind of went on. When he and he quieted down some, he got more relaxed. And then he said that he said relaxing, bowed. And as as you might imagine a number of the students had tears in their eyes. And, you know, he said, he looked at them and said, I'm sorry. And one of them said, you know, no one has ever taught us the Dharma this way. And what had he done, you know? All these waves of experience, he just paused. He recognized what was happening. He just named it. And in some way he bowed. He honored, okay, it's this way of this moment. It's not like saying, I want it to keep on being like this way, or I love it. It just, 
this deep kind of respect that this is the life of right now. This is how it actually is. And that's all acceptance is, is really all we can do is agree to the actuality of what's happening right this moment. So I think of this as in a basic way we're learning to say yes to what's right here. Sometimes I'll do, um, in, in day-longs, I'll do an exercise where I'll have people experience what's going on and say no to their experience and then say yes and compare it. And it's interesting because sometimes we have to first say no. If there's been a lot of trauma, or there's a lot of imbalance, if we don't have the, the resilience, the space for our experience, then to temporarily pay attention somewhere else or say, no, not now, can be a skillful means. But what we find ultimately is that there's no freedom unless we can open the windows and doors of our being to the life that's living through us. To not resist. Remember um, the very first... Buddhist retreat I ever attended, one of the teachers in one of the early Dharma talks said something like, the boundary to what we accept is the boundary to our freedom. And for me, I just did this review in my whole life of all that I was resisting and realizing anywhere there was resistance, I wasn't free. So we learned to stay. You know, we, we learn to, this is the practice here, that we will continue to find ourselves in situations where the waves of experience are unpleasant or else we have that sense of wanting something different. And the invitation is, can we, instead of pursuing the thoughts, contracting with our body or our mind, can we relax the resistance and open to what's here? Now, just another flavor to this um, being willingness to be present that was more recent for me that I encountered was that um, I was at the Forest Refuge for a, a month last fall, and one of the descriptions of presence that was given, really one of the descriptions of right mindfulness, is a diligent, committed presence. And there was a, um, in one talk, a description of Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you have heard of, a wonderful um, English Thai, monk from the Theravadan tradition. And his, one of his practices is that when the waves get intense and he finds his mind getting busy, kind of leaping off in all directions, he'll say to himself, it's like this. Whatever's going on, fear, okay, it's like this. Right now, it's like this. And it kind of nails the attention to the actuality of, okay, this is what's happening. I think of it, when I heard it, it was kind of, a, kind of this Vajra sword that if there's any tendency for the mind to just flip off into trying to fix or change or numb or plan, it's like this. So I heard this in a talk, and as always happens... Um, or for me a lot, um, then my inner experience will get 
whacked out of shape in some way that I'll really be forced into something. I um, had began this retreat, um, this was last October, in a kind of one of my old styles, which is a kind of type A yogi, sitting very long stretches and um, ended up really hurting my knee. It was not the advice, the wise advice John was giving this morning at all. And um, and so I went into this mental proliferation that was really, really, that was where the dukkha was, which is the shame of like, how, how, could, I, how could I have done that to myself, not known how to take care of myself? And now what do I do? And I'll never run again. I have a lot of attachment around running. And so that phrase, it's like this, became um, this precious uh, dharma gift that any time, anywhere my mind moved was dukkha. Any thought was dukkha. So every time I'd find my mind moving, I'd say, oh, it's like this. It's just this feeling of tugging or pain or twisting in the knee. Or this twist of fear in the heart. Or this wave of grief, because I was feeling grief at not being able to use my body the way I wanted. It's like this that sort of discrimination that just, it really nails the attention right to the present moment. What I found, and this is really, I think, the power of a committed presence, is that when we absolutely, wholeheartedly say yes, then space opens up. There's a shift in our sense of who we are. We shift from the self that wanted it different. Something's missing, something's wrong. The self that's trying to control to that awareness that's recognizing with wise attention what's happening. We become enlarged. You might for a moment again, just if you'd like, just to close your eyes and just sense whatever is happening right now. And you might even ask that question, what is happening inside me this moment? What does it mean to entrust yourself to these waves? to say yes with a committed and wholehearted presence just to this, just to this. Who are we when we're not resisting, when there's no resistance?
when you'd like to open your eyes and just one more piece just to add to this which is that there are times that we will begin to sense what's going on and it'll feel like too much it'll feel like um, we're just getting tugged around and there's not a balance in the midst that we can't that we're not really saying yes we're bargaining we're waiting for it to go away even more than that it, sometimes the extreme is we're re-traumatizing ourselves we're not there's no learning there's no sense of deepened presence and that is an indicator that in this art or dance of practice that we really need to cultivate a sense of more spaciousness there are many ways we do that there are ways of, of, of visualizing and imagining and opening the mind to sense the sky-like nature of mind, that real openness of listening. There's ways with concentration of, that the very nature, when we start getting concentrated, let's say we turn away from the waves that are distressing and we get a little more concentrated, there's more balance, there's more of a sense of ease and openness and peacefulness. The tranquility actually allows us to then meet the waves with more balance. The Buddha gave us, in the most basic way, the practices of the heart, cultivating metta, as a way of making room for what's difficult. And he, as many of you know, when the monks that he had sent off into the woods to meditate and came back telling him they were absolutely frightened or terrified of the spirits that were in the woods... Um, what could they do? He gave them the metta practice as a way of experiencing that connection, that openness, that softness of heart that can really be with this whole living, dying world. Metta gives us that space, that room. So we practice that here as a way of, as part of this balancing of remembering this loving presence that has room for our life. And um, last summer, I was uh, teaching a, a seminar, and one woman described how metta had worked for her in a way that I th- that was very compelling to me. She had had fe- she had been um, taking care of her mother for the last oh four or five months. Her mother was dying of cancer; didn't have very long to live, and all her life, her her history with her mother had been that uh, her mom was this kind of chronically critical, controlling person, and she had kind of developed this kind of armoring against her mother um, and kept a distance. But here she was taking care of her in these final months, and um, her mother felt this resolve that she wanted to be less of a critical person. And she wanted to make amends, she wanted to connect with the people around her. So she asked her daughter to kind of give her feedback here and there. And once, after um, some relatives had visited, she said to her daughter, well, how am I doing, you know? And this woman said to her mom, Mom, you're doing really good. You really are doing good. And her mother shook her head sadly and said, no, I'm doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) And she just kind of laid back and closed her eyes, you know, shaking her head. Well, for this woman, it was like a whole lifetime of not good enough sprung up 
And it was really um, this stabbing in her heart. And so what she did, much like um, the men with Alzheimer's that I mentioned, she paused. And she just put her hand on her heart. And she could feel going through her just like a lifetime of being the child that wasn't good enough. And um, just offered a tremendous amount of kindness to that place in her. And, and, and felt the sense of a lifetime dropping away as she did. And when she opened her eyes, she could see her mother. And just to say she was aided by impermanence. It wakes us up. But she could see her mother and see that the caked-on covering of a controlling person, much like Jack was describing that, that fantastic statue of the Buddha. She could see that, but she could see this radiant shining out of just her essential goodness. To pause, to sense what's happening, and to bring care makes room for the waves to play themselves out in a very deep way. A friend of mine who's a poet, beautiful poems, wrote, a, wrote one called White Dove. In the shared quiet, an invitation arises like a white dove lifting from a limb and taking flight. Come and live in truth. Take your place in the flow of grace. Draw aside the veil you thought would always separate your heart from love. All you ever longed for is before you in this moment if you dare draw in a breath and whisper yes. So I began a bit with describing how sickness is homesickness. We leave home. We leave the moment when it's difficult. It's our conditioning. It's our biological habit. And that this practice of presence, of committed presence, is a way of recognizing how we pull away. And moment by moment, entrusting ourselves again and again to the waves. And what happens as we do, in any moment that we trust, that we allow ourselves to be fully with what's here, we become that presence. We become that openness, that tenderness, that space. So it's by entrusting ourselves to the waves that we actually learn to trust that ocean of our being that Buddha nature, that true nature, which really is our home. So to close, again, if you will, just to um, let your attention go inward. To sense what it means to you to entrust yourself to the waves.
all you ever longed for is before you in this moment if you dare draw in a breath and whisper yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.